When he arrived in America in 1891, at age 14, Zamuri was tall, gangly, and penniless. When he died in the grandest house in New Orleans 69 years later, he was among the richest, most powerful men in the world. In between, he worked as a fruit peddler, a banana hauler, a dockside hustler, and the owner of plantations in Central America. He battled and conquered United Fruit, which was one of the first truly global corporations. Zamuri's life is a parable of the American dream, not history as recorded in the textbooks, but the authentic version, a subterranean saga of kickbacks, overthrows, and secret deals. The world as it really works. This story can shock and infuriate us, and it does, but I found it invigorating too. It told me that the life of the nation was written not only by speech-making politicians, but also by street corner boys, immigrant strivers, crazed and driven, some with one good idea, some with thousands, willing to go to the ends of the earth to make their vision real. It meant anyone could write a chapter in that book, be part of the story, vanish into the jungle, and reemerge as a figure of lore. If you want to understand the spirit of our nation, the good and the bad, you can enroll in college, sign up for classes, take notes, and pay tuition. Or you can study the life of Sam the Banana Man. That was an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is The Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King, and it was written by Rich Cohen. I had originally read this book many years ago. It was originally Founders episode number 37. It's one of the best written books that I've read so far for the podcast, and Sam Zamuri's life story may not have an equal. And so I wanted to reread it again and then put it into context with everything else that we've learned over the last, what, 200, almost 230 founder biographies that you and I have gone over since episode number 37. So I want to jump right into the prologue. Uh, at this point in the story, uh, Sam Zamuri is 33 years old, and he is organizing a coup to overthrow the Honduran government. Sam Zamuri spoke in no accent except when he swore, which was all the time. He was a big man, six foot three, nothing but muscle and bone, and the, with the wingspan of a condor. He had a crisp, no-nonsense manner. At 33 years old, he was already a colorful figure. After 10 years in the South, so he starts out in Alabama and then uh, eventually moves to Louisiana, to New Orleans. After 10 years in the South, he was known by a variety of nicknames. Z, the Russian. Sam, the Banana Man. El Amigo, the Gringo. He arrived at the, on the docks at the start of the last century with nothing. In the early years, he had to make his way in the lowest precincts of the fruit business, peddling ripes, bananas other traders dumped into the sea. We'll talk more about that, that idea right there, the idea that he identified a very profitable niche that was just hiding in plain sight. Uh, he worked like a dog and defied the most powerful people in the country. By 1905, he owned steamships that crossed the Gulf of Mexico, heading south empty and returning with bananas. He had traveled the width of Honduras on a mule because he wanted to know the terrain, get his hands in the black soil. At 33, Zamuri was in the process of overthrowing a foreign government. That is not hyperbolic. That is actually true. He had been warned by Philander Knox, the U.S. Secretary of State, who ordered federal agents to tail him. So there's going to be more. There's this legendary meeting uh, that Zamuri has before the events that are taking place right now in the book with the Secretary of State Knox, and there's going to be a cameo because Knox was working with uh, J.P. Morgan. So I'll talk more about that in a little bit. 
So he'd been warned by the Secretary of State, hey, basically told him, stay out of Honduras. I don't care about your banana company. We have, there's bigger interests in the U.S. government, so stay away. Uh, obviously, Sir Murray didn't listen. Uh, but he didn't care. If Sam failed, he faced ruin. But if he succeeded, he would become a king in banana land. And so the prologue talks about the beginning of what is going to wind up being a successful coup. Sir Murray recruits General Bonilla. General Bonilla had been previously been the president of Honduras. And so this line right here describes Sam's thinking to us. With the right kind of help, Bonilla could be president again. And so he's going to give Bonilla money, ships, guns, support. There's all these mercenaries that are, that are waiting uh, to meet up with Zamuri at this point in the story. I just want to pull out something here because it's fascinating that they, uh, they actually mentioned this guy that I did a podcast on a long time ago. So these are the mercenaries. They're meeting around. They're drinking. They're waiting for Zamuri. They told stories about mercenary heroes like Lopez, who left New Orleans with 100 men, landed in Cuba, and nearly reached Havana before he was caught and hung in a public square. They talked about William Walker. This is the guy all the way back on Founders Number 55. I read one of the craziest books I've ever read. It's called Tycoon's War. The subtitle of the book will tell you exactly what the book is about. And it says how Cornelius Vanderbilt invaded a country to overthrow America's most famous military adventurer. America's most famous military adventurer is William Walker, which is the guy that these guys are sitting in the bar toasting to. William Walker made the fatal mistake of confiscating some of Cornelius Vanderbilt's company property. So Cornelius Vanderbilt sought to have him killed. William Walker is going to wind up being killed. Uh, he had a lot of enemies, not just Cornelius Vanderbilt. Uh, but that just gives you an insight of like, there's a lot of people who are like, you might be able to compare like an entrepreneur from the past, maybe 150 years ago to somebody today, but you can't really do that with Cornelius Vanderbilt. The only person in present day that reminds me of Cornelius Vanderbilt is, I would say he's like more like a Vladimir Putin than any other founder that's alive today. Just his, the, he had like nation level wealth and he was also completely ruthless. In fact, the opening line of that podcast I did was, Unlike Vanderbilt's other adversaries, William Walker was not afraid of Cornelius when he should have been. So it's interesting how this all ties together because the mercenaries that uh, Zamuri is hiring to overthrow the Honduran government are looking up to William Walker and they give a description of him here, which is really weird why you'd look up to somebody who actually, well, this is what it says. William Walker, who captured Nicaragua with 84 soldiers, but was later stood up against a wall in Honduras and shot full of holes. And that's interesting because the way I remember it, I thought he was shot to death blindfolded on a beach. But in any case, the, the end is the same. They caught him and they killed him. So these mercenaries are waiting on a boat. They're waiting for another boat, which is going to be Zamuri. They're right off the coast of New Orleans. So let's go right there. They're talking to each other. What now? We wait for El Amigo. A boat appeared on the horizon. It was Zamuri. He hops on board. He says he led the way to a cabin filled with weapons, grenades, rifles, a machine gun, enough ammunition to fight a war. Then he stood in the galley cooking breakfast, steak and eggs, a bottle of whiskey. He drank a shot for himself. He told the captain to raise anchor and motor over to another ship, which is called the Hornet. So this is the boat that he's going to give the mercenaries. Uh, the Hornet was a fearsome armor-clad cruiser that had seen action in the Spanish-American War. Zamuri had brought the ship secretly through a third party for his mercenaries. Then Zamuri jumps off to another boat. Zamuri said goodbye to the men. He then stood deck on his ship, watching the Hornet pass the barrier islands and sail into the open sea. Okay, so from there, the book starts telling the story. Like, how do you get to that point? You just said he arrived at 14 years old, uh, from Russia, immigrant, no education, no money, and then was that 15, 16 years later, he has enough money and he's built up this business where he decides to overthrow a government because that government is hostile to his business interests. So let's go to his early life. And the note on this page is simple. It's, he was driven, ruthless, and relentless. 
He was born in 1877 in Western Russia. His father died young, leaving his family penniless without prospects. Sam traveled to America with his aunt in 1892. He was to, this is what his family told him to do. He was to establish himself and send, then send for the others, his mother and his siblings. He popped up in Selma, Alabama, where his uncle owned a store. He was 14 or 15, but you would guess him much older. Now, this is a crazy sentence that I've seen over and over again. The, the, the idea behind this sentence over and over again in these books. The immigrants of that era could not afford to be children. By 16, he was hardened, a tough operator, a dead-end kid, coolly figuring out the angles. Where's the play? What's in it for me? His humor was black, his explanations few. And this is another great sentence. The writing, I just ordered another one of Rich Cohen's books. He just actually published a biography of his father. But this is, he's one of the best writers I've ever come across in terms of just making a founder biography. Not only is there like a ton of interesting lessons in here, but it's hard to put down the book. It's just absolutely fantastic writing. He was driven by the same raw energy that had always attracted the most ambitious to America, then pushed them to the head of the crowd. Grasper, climber, nasty ways of describing this kid who wants what you take for granted. From his first months in America, he was scheming, looking for ways to get ahead. You did not need to be a Rockefeller to know the basics of the dream. Start at the bottom, fight your way to the top. Over time, Sam would develop a philosophy best expressed in a handful of phrases. So these are what I would call Zamurrisms. They're spread throughout the entire book. Here's a few here. You're there. We're here. Go see for yourself. That's like the essentially his modus operandi for management. Don't trust the report. And we'll get into that more of this later. But he kept his entire business inside his head. He did not like writing things down. Though immensely complicated, he was in a fundamental way simple. He believed in staying close to the action, in the fields with the workers, in the dive bars with the, the banana cowboys. You drink with the man and you'll learn what he knows. And this to me is the most important uh, sentence in the entire book. There is no problem you can't solve if you understand your business from A to Z, he said. And there's a few more highlights to give you a good idea as like his personality. You get a good idea of who he is as a person or who he was as a person. And then we get into like some of the first jobs. He just did anything he could for money. Sam did not care for crowds and parties. He had a restless mind and a persistent need to get outside. He liked to be alone. So he starts out stacking shelves and checking inventory in his uncle's store. Uh, he dealt with the salesman who turned up with the sample cases. He stood in the alley amid the garbage cans asking about supplies and costs. There was money to be made, he realized, but not here. He interrogated customers. He was looking for different work and would try anything. His early life was a series of adventures with odd job leading to odd job. Much of the color that would later... And the reason this, is, this sentence describes why I'm reading this section to you. Much of the color that would later entertain magazine writers, because Sam's life had the dimension of a fairy tale, were accumulated in these first few years in Alabama. He was employed by an old-timer. Now and then, the old-timer would offer Sam some wisdom. Banks fail, women leave, but land lasts forever. So this guy's job, well, this is what this guy did for a living and what he's hiring Sam to do. Uh, the guy combed trash piles on the edge of town, searching for discarded scraps of sheet metal. Then he would pile it on a cart and push it from farm to farm, looking for trades. I'll trade you some wire for a chicken coop in return from one of those pigs that you got in the pen. After the particulars were agreed on, Sam was told to get moving. Catch and tie that animal, boy. It was Zamuri's first real job. Remember this sentence for later. He was paid a dollar a week. A dollar a week. And then this next part demonstrates, at least this is what I wrote to myself when I got to this section, 
He may be young and poor, but he's got a brain, and you clearly see that now. He kept the job long enough to know that he would rather be the man who owned the hog than the man who collected the junk. And he'd rather be the man who discarded the sheet metal than the man who owned the hog. A series of odd jobs followed. He was a house cleaner. He was a delivery boy. By 18, he had saved enough money to send for his brothers and sisters. But his real life began only when he saw that first banana. He devised a plan soon after. He would travel to Mobile, Alabama, where the fruit boats arrived from Central America, purchase a supply of his own, carry them back to Selma, and go into the business. So he goes down to the dock and he's looking for opportunity. There's a line here that just is really a main theme of the book. The main theme of the book is that you should learn every detail of your trade. He just said the reason he's doing this is because if I know everything A to Z, there's no problem I can't solve. He wanted to learn every detail of the trade. The bananas that did not make the cut were designated as ripes and they were heaped in a sad pile. A ripe is a banana you have left in the sun that has become freckled. These bananas, though they're still good to eat right now, would never make it to the market in time. In less than a week, they'd begin to soften and stink. As far as the banana merchants were concerned, before Sam, that's the important part, these were trash. So they're telling us Sam's essentially spotted an opportunity where others saw nothing. Sam grew fixated on the ripes. He recognized a product where others had seen only trash. It was a world, it was the worldview of the immigrant, understanding how so-called garbage might be valued under a different name, seeing nutrition where others only saw waste. He was the son of a poor Russian farmer for whom food had once been scarce enough, scarce enough to make even a freckled banana seem precious. That's another uh, main theme of the book that'll pop up over and over again. That is the primary way he viewed himself as just a farmer. Sam walked down to the pier to talk to the company agent. Zamuri had saved $150. That was his stake. He figured it would go further if it was spent on ripes. He was no fool. He knew what this meant, that he'd have to move fast, that he was entering a race with the clock. As far as he was concerned, now keep in mind, I'm going to tell you what I thought about the, the parag this paragraph after I read it, but I'm going to tell you it before I read it to you. This is going to remind me of Jay-Z. And I'll, I'll explain why, how, where that connection is coming from. As far as he was concerned, ripes were considered trash only because Boston Fruit and similar other firms were too slow-footed to cover ground. It was a calculation based on arrogance. I can be fast where others have been slow. I can hustle where others have been satisfied with the easing pickings of the trade. So all the way back on Founders 238, if you haven't listened to it yet, I read Jay-Z's autobiography. You never know when you release a podcast which ones are going to resonate. For some reason, that one resonates a lot. I constantly hear back from people that love that podcast. I love the book because I've been a huge Jay-Z fan my whole life. There's two things that came to mind immediately uh, when I got to that section. And there, there's two paragraphs. They're, they're on uh, One's on page 75 of Jay-Z's autobiography. One's on page 76. I'm going to read them because this is exactly where I feel the mentality that Jay-Z had, very similar to the mentality we see from a young Sam Zamuri. And this is what Jay-Z says. This is the kid on the street. The kid on the streets is getting a shot at a dream. He sees the guy who gets rich and thinks, yep, that'll be me. He ignores the other stories going around. And I'll get to the second paragraph in a minute, but Sir Murray's making that same calculation. There's a ton of people getting rich in the banana trade, right? There's a bunch of people, and he winds up hiring these people that were at one point rich or one point successful and then fell off. And so he hires them to make sure that he avoids their fate, which is actually really smart that he does that later on. But this idea is like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to worry about the people that tried this and failed. I'm going to assume the guy that, that 
I'm going to assume I'm the person. I'm the guy that got that get rich that got rich and thinks, "Yep, that'll be me." The second paragraph that I think also illustrates Sam's thinking here. There's no and this is so dead on with what's happening in the book. There's no way to quantify all this on a spreadsheet, but it's the dream of being the exception, the one who gets rich and gets out before he gets got. That is the key to a hustler's motivation. And that's mind-blowing to me because Jay-Z is describing his, the early days of his life. Now you go and you put in, you place that in context with the early days of Sam Murray's life, and it's the exact same thought applied to a different domain. It was a calculation based on arrogance. I can be fast where others have been slow. I can hustle. It's interesting they use the same word. He's using that as a verb. Jay-Z's using it as a noun. I can hustle where others have been satisfied with the easy pickings of the trade. Let's go back to the book. Zamuri's first cargo consisted of a few thousand bananas. He did not spend all his money, but retained a small balance, which was used to rent a boxcar on the railroad. The trip to Selma, where he's taking the bananas, was scheduled to take three days, meaning he would have just enough time to get the fruit to market before the sun did its worst. Since the freight, this is so wild, since the freight charge used the last of his money, Zamuri traveled in the boxcar with the bananas. And this is just fantastic writing. It seems appropriate. Zamuri sleeping besides his first hall, attending to his product like a baby in a nursery. And so we see another trait that Sam has his whole life. He's always listening. He wants the information that you have. Because that information, if I shut up, if I use my ears more than my mouth, that's how I get smart, right? And so he winds up talking to a brakeman, just a guy working on uh, the railroad that gives him a great idea. And this is what the guy said to him. You got a good product there. If you could just get word ahead of the towns along the line on the railroad, I'm sure the grocery owners would meet you at the platforms and buy the bananas right off the boxcar. During the next day, Zamuri went into, and then we see the relentless resourcefulness that is a, a hallmark of Zamuri's entire life. Zamuri went into a Western Union office and spoke to a telegraph operator. He had no money, so Sam offered a deal. If the man radioed every operator ahead, asking each of them to spread the word to local merchants, dirt cheap bananas coming through for merchants and peddlers, Sam would share a percentage of his sales. When the uh, railroad arrived in the next town, the customers were waiting. He sold the last banana. Then he went home in the dark where he tallied his mother money. I asked you to remember that he was making a dollar a week chasing pigs, right? This is just a few years before this is happening. It came to $190, his first real success. After accounting for expenses, Sam had earned $40 in six days. Earth put another way. 40 times his weekly earnings just a few years before. Zamuri had stumbled on a niche, ripes overlooked at the bottom of the trade, where the big fruit companies monopolized the upper precincts of the industry. And to do so, you needed capital, railroads, ships to operate in, uh, in the greens, which is uh, like you're essentially farming your own bananas. So, the way to think about that, the world of ripes was wide open. It was in these months on train platforms all in the small towns in American South that Zamuri first came to be known as Sam the Banana Man. And more great writing that I think really puts the, it puts the image in your mind of Sam the Banana Man at this point. As a salesman of a perishable product, he was skirting the line between wealth and oblivion, health and rot, a rider of railroads, a chaser of time. It was life. Move the fruit now or you're ruined forever. He became a gambler by necessity, a risk taker, a salesman, a brawler. That little fellow, as the big executives in Boston called him, but that little fellow would build a kingdom from ripes. So for the next few years, he's going to focus on this profitable niche that he identified and he realized, oh, I can grow fast and wait till we get to how fast he grew it. It was remarkable. 
some more background here that just talks about the, you know, you and I have talked about this idea over and over again that, that I think most people that have ever lived overestimate or underestimate, maybe that's the right word. Uh, a lot can ha change in one lifetime. One, like, I think that's the key reason to read this book and what I got the most of uh, rereading it the second time is it completely like takes whatever's in your mind about what one person can accomplish in one lifetime, takes your brain out of your skull and like stretches it. It's like, oh, it's like you can do so much more. And as long as you don't limit your options, cap your upside by any means, which Sam obviously never did, this is what I mean. So it talks about you have a Supreme Court justice. This is this is just like a throwback to what's going to happen in, in, the, in his life a few decades from now. You have a Supreme Court justice writing a letter to the president of the United States about Sam Zamuri, like the 14-year-old the, the Russian immigrant that came to America with no education, no money. That is wild. Uh, so it says, he had the sort, Sam was big, deliberate, strong, and slow. He stood out from the beginning. He's also quiet. He had the sort of calm that cannot be taught. Years later, in a letter to FDR, Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter described Zamuri as, quote, one of the few statesmen among businessmen that I have ever encountered. He has the qualities that one usually finds in a great personality. That is just remarkable. So back to this this time in the early career of his, uh, in his early career rather, he was a kind of colossus. Dismissals of him as a little fellow were comical. They're referencing. So you have the, this this company, the whale and the the fish, right? In the, the title, the whale is United Fruit. Now the founders of United Fruit. There's going to be three founders. I'm going to introduce you to them in a minute. They're all. They all, what's fascinating to me is like they saw, they were much older than, than, um, than Sam. Uh, they said, they're like, oh, like he's, he's another me, right? Maybe a younger version of me. They never, ever, ever underestimated him. In fact, they did the smart move and they partnered with him. Now, when they die and this gigantic company they wound up building from nothing is taken over by these executives, they're, they do the exact opposite. And you and I have talked about this over and over again. It pops up in the book. There is no upside. Never underestimate your opponent. It is all downside and no upside, and that's exactly what they do. They underestimated one of the most formidable individuals to ever live, and they would call him the little fellow. And so that's what the author's saying. It's like the idea that you call him a little fellow was comical, not only because he was gigantic in size, you know, six foot three, all muscle. You know, he's going to, like, they're in an office in Boston. He's, like, hacking a machete and building and, and planting banana plants in Honduras. Uh, so he says he moved to mobile. We're not there yet, though. Uh, he moved uh, to Mobile, Alabama soon after he went into Ripes. Better to live near the docks. If business was slow, he took a job. He, worked, he would work on a ship as part of a cleaning crew scrubbing decks. He had soon made his name as a uniquely resourceful trader, this crazy Russian who bought all the freckled bananas. He was pure hustle. There's that word again, used by both Jay-Z and Sam Zamuri and the author. He purchased every ripe and overripe and about to be ripe he could lay his hands on. The importers were happy to get money for what in other towns was considered trash. This is going to bring him to the attention of Andrew Preston. Andrew Preston is going to be maybe the, there's three founders in, in uh, United Fruit. He might be the most important one. And he's the one he's like, hey, I want to meet this kid. And that is Zamuri is a kid at this time. It's really hard to understand that. Uh, because Zamuri discovered a patch of fertile ground previously untilled, his business grew by leaps and bounds. So what does that mean? In 1899, he sold 20,000 bananas. Four years later, he sold half a million Within a decade, he'd be selling more than a million bananas a year. Andrew Preston, the president of United Fruit and one of the founders, asked to meet Zamuri, this Russian selling all the ripes. No photos of this meeting were taken, no minutes recorded, but it was significant. The titan who began the trade, that is not hyperbolic either, and we'll get into like how technology unlocks it. Before the banana trade, was, it was all local. The invention of the seamship, 
that that new technology, the steamship, winds turns it into a global business. That's why the the book starts out with like, you have to understand, United Fruit was one of the tr- first truly global corporations. In fact, there's like this antitrust suit that gets taken against United Fruit all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and that decision affects the future of all these international comp- co- uh, companies that that occur after this. So, uh, I think I bring that up later on, but I want to get to what. Uh, Preston's talking about like how, what his impression of Zamuria, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, so it says, but, but it was significant. The titan who began the trade shaking hands with the nobody who would perfect it. Preston later spoke of Zamuria with admiration. He said, the kid from Russia was closer in spirit to the banana pioneers than anyone else working. He's a risk taker, Preston explained. He's a thinker. He's a doer. And so what do you think Preston's going to do when he comes across somebody like that? He's like, oh, I need to, I need to sign this kid. Zumuri signed a contract with United Fruit that year, putting their arrangement in writing. And so there's going to be this dance throughout their entire, throughout Zumuri's entire life, because Preston's eventually going to, uh, he's, he's a lot older than Zumuri, so he's going to pass away. But this is like the first dance, the first song in the dance that they're going to have throughout their entire careers, where you have Zumuri's company, which he's going to formalize here in a little bit. And eventually, like, it's going to have a partnership with United Fruit. Then there's all these antitrust, uh, antitrust uh, allegations from the Justice Department of the United States, causes Preston to be forced to sell back to Zamuri. The, the, I think he only owned like 10% of the company, something like that, which is going to lead to Zamuri building like the, the, the most formidable competition that United Fruit's ever seen. And then eventually there's what the entire book's about is how the hell does this fruit jobber, right? This little guy from the docks is what they called him. Uh, how does he take over one of the, <laughs> how does he take over and then run for 25 years uh, one of the f- first truly global corporations. He's going to wind up taking over Preston's company. He, he does it after Preston dies. But it's just wild when you think about, wow, all the way back in 1903, they're just meeting on the docks in Mobile, Alabama. And you have Preston be like, hey, I, I need to be on this guy's team. I see me in him. So let's go back to the book. A few years before, Zamuri seemed like a fool buying garbage. Now look at what he accomplished. Selling hundreds of thousands of bananas a year, he become one of the biggest traffickers in the trade. And he'd done it without having to incur the traditional costs. What does that mean? His fruit was grown for him, unlike Preston's. Harvested and shipped for free, unlike Preston's. He was like a bike racer riding in the windbreak of a semi-truck. That's a really, what a fantastic, like that, like you get to that part, it's like, oh, immediately in your mind's eye, you, like I picture that. Uh, so it says he was like a bike racer riding in the windbreak of a semi-truck. The semi-truck being United Fruit. By his 21st birthday, he had $100,000 in the bank. In, today ter- in today's terms, he would have been a millionaire. If he had stopped there, his would have been a great success story. But here's the thing. They don't write books about people that stopped there. So we know Zamuri obviously didn't stop there. That's not his personality. In fact, he, he starts, so he starts working in the trade, what, he's 18, 19 years old? He has like a few, and this is such a crazy story. I know I've said that over and over again, but it is really one of the crazy stories I've ever come across. Eventually, he, the United States government is going to force Zamuri to sell his business to United Fruit because they're about to go to war. The two companies are literally go to war in Central America and they had interests. So there's throughout the life of the Sam Zamuri, there's times where the government wants him, wants him and United Fruit to divest. And then there's, and a few years later, they force them to partner. But so he has like a, you know, a few year break, like a year or two break. I forgot the exact time. And then, but outside of that year or two break where he's forced out of the industry, he works in the banana industry till he's, I want to say 74, 76. So starting 18, 76, and he dies, I think at 84. So let's go to his next step. Obviously, there's a lot more detail. Highly, highly, highly recommend. If you haven't read the book, and I know a ton of people listen to founders have because I've talked to them about it, but if you haven't, you got to pick it up because it's just so crazy. And it's only like, 
I got a lot of highlights, but you know, 250 pages, it's, it's just absolutely fantastic. So let's get to the next part in Zamuri's life. How is he going to move up the stack, right? He's like, all right, well, I'm not going to just stay. I'm not content to just stay with Ripes forever. I want to expand. He realizes, hey, I got to take on a partner, even though it kind of goes against his nature. Sam Zamuri took a partner in 1903. This was out of character. He was a solitary sort, a late night walker, and a party avoider. He liked to make decisions on his own, better to ask forgiveness than permission. But he had gone as far as he could with Ripes. He wanted to move into the more respectable precincts of the trade. That was where the real money was. For this, he would need capital and help. So he takes his partner and says, Hubbard, that's the guy's name, is gone now, dead and buried and forgotten. He was a poor bastard who lacked the nerve, who sold out too early, who quit the game a minute before the number came in. Uh, that, that happens in the future, though. At this point, they joined with an ambitious goal to traffic yellows and greens. This meant they'd have to contract Central American farmers for a percentage of each harvest, which Zamuri and Hubbard would then import. For Sam, who had always kept costs down, this meant assuming a new level of risk and that risk, his high tolerance. There's a lot of echoes because I just reread two books or I reread Titan and then read another biography of Rockefeller. We're going to see that, like, oh, they, they think very similarly. So does Andrew Preston in regard to, to Rockefeller. But that high tolerance for risk makes Hubbard in the future extremely uh, uncomfortable. And that, that's going to lead to Zamuri buying him out. Zamuri and Hubbard purchased Thatcher Brothers Steamship Company, which was in bad financial shape. The acquisition ran upwards of $10,000. Sam put up some of the money and Hubbard did the same. And the balance was covered by the United Fruit, uh, by United Fruit Company at the direction of Andrew Preston. Preston followed Zamuri's progress as the general... This is such a great description of what Preston is doing. Preston followed Zamuri's progress as the general manager of the Yankees might follow a flamethrower making his way through the minors. Such partnerships were the way of United Fruit, the style that earned the company the nickname The Octopus. They wrapped their tentacles around every startup in the industry. In those days, United Fruit either owned a piece of you or was in intent on your destruction. And then as a result of buying this company, having steamships, doing a partnership with both Hubbard and uh, Preston, this is a great way to think about this, his field of operations suddenly expanded. The entire Gulf of Mexico was now open. So I want to skip ahead because I want to talk to about the founders of United Fruit, which I thought this section was absolutely fascinating. And so it says, in certain ways, Sam Murray was without precedent. The pushcart Nebish, the fruit jobber from the docks. He came from nowhere to create not just a fortune, but an archetype. He was the gringo in platonic form. He seemed to strive for the sake of striving, to hustle to prove it could be done. Swinging his machete as the sun beats down, face bathed in sweat. You see him astride his white mule. He's in the doorway of the cantina. His voice is gruff, saying, if you're on a man's side, this is another Zamuri, Zamuriism, you can think about it that way. If you're on a man's side, you stay on that man's side, or you're no better than a goddamn animal, he would say. Was there a precursor? And we know we already know the answer to this question because that's a major point of studying the history of entrepreneurship. Of course there was. There always is. It's just the same personality type that just keeps appearing over and over again throughout hundreds of years of history. It's remarkable. Of course there was. The world is a mere succession of fortunes made and lost, lessons learned and forgotten and learned again. In truth, Zamuri was following a path blazed by three men who had gone into the jungle a generation before. Here I speak of the Titans, who built the greatest banana company in the world, United Fruit, the Octopus, reviled even now 
decades after its empire collapsed in the South. So the three founders, uh, they're all going to come together for different reasons. It's Lorenzo Baker, Andrew Preston, and Minor Key. So Lorenzo Baker, this goes on for quite a bit. So I'm just going to give you the top-level highlights. So this podcast will be like five hours long. Uh, Lorenzo Baker, he's the one. He's going to buy the ship. And so he's making money because gold prospectors are saying, hey, will you take us down to somewhere? I think this might be in Bolivia. I can't remember exactly. And he's like, yeah, I'll take that. That's fine. And so on his route back up to America, he's at a bar in the Caribbean. And he sees his first bananas and he's like, what are those? And there's a hist- there's an entire like history of the banana in this book, which is also fascinating. I found out a bunch of things, things that were surprising to me, like a banana is not a fruit. It's a berry. Technically, it's not a tree. It's the world's tallest grass. It can grow. A banana plant can grow uh, 20 inches in 24 hours. All kinds of like mind blowing stats in the book. But anyways, he sees his first banana. He's like, what are these? And he didn't even know how to open it. And so then he's like, oh, this is delicious. I'm going to buy them. So he bought 160 bunches. He's in Jamaica at this time. He bought 160 bunches at 24 cents a bunch. So he gets back in this point. I think his destination is Jersey. He gets there and he sells them. So he paid 24 cents a bunch. He sold all of his bananas for $2 a bunch. He's like, oh, this is extremely profitable. So then he makes this trip a few times. In July 1871, he sailed into Boston with the biggest load of bananas the city has ever seen. Why is that important? Because his soon-to-be co-founder is on the docks. This is Andrew Preston, who had just met with Zamuri. Uh, this is obviously, you know, many decades before he met Zamuri. Andrew Preston was on the docks that afternoon. The load came in. Preston took a special interest in perishables. He had made a career of recognizing a prize at a distance. He bought Baker's entire haul. And then he starts making a lot of money on bananas. This is a fantastic sentence, I think, describes why this is so important. Andrew Preston would not stop talking about bananas. Like Baker before him and like Zamiri after, he had spotted a niche. So Preston and Baker are going to team up. They're going to import bananas. They're going to sell them. Eventually, they're going to team up. Well, let me just read this to you. So it's actually... um, easier just for me to read it. Preston meant to change uh, the model of the business. It had been low volume, high price. He would make it high volume with cheap bananas sold up and down the, the economic scale, which is the world that we live in now, right? To achieve this, Baker and Preston had to increase supply and control quality. And so they're going to go down. They're going to meet this guy, Minor Keith, who's in Costa Rica at the time, if I'm not mistaken. This is incredible writing. There's going to be the third party and uh, third partner in United Fruit. I'm going to read the entire, there's like two and a half paragraphs here. There's just remarkable. Because what is, Minor Keith is not down there. Uh, like bananas was not the, his primary goal. Minor Keith is trying to build the first railroad in the area. Building a railroad in a jungle is not easy and not safe. It is not clear when he realized the work was going to be a lot harder than he imagined. A few days into the job is my guess. Laying track uh, in a jungle is a nightmare. There is no bedrock in the jungle. As soon as a section of rail had been laid, it would begin to shift. Now and then, after a big rain, an entire stretch would slide into a valley. Weeds wrapped around the ties. Roots buckled the beds. The workers were tormented by heat and disease. More than 300 died the first year, and just four miles of track were completed. Minor Keith is down there with his brother, Henry. Halfway through the second summer, Henry Keith was not feeling well. Feverish hot to the touch, and his eyes, my God, his eyes, yellow fever. Miner told his brother to go home to Brooklyn, recover, then return. But less than a month later, Henry was back. Soon after, he was dead. Miner moved into his brother's tent and carried on. He sent for his little brother, Charlie, as he had been sent for. 
When that brother died, he sent for his younger brother, youngest brother, John. When John died, he continued alone. This made him a hero in Costa Rica, a man whose commitment could not be questioned, who fed his own brothers to the jungle. The railroad made its first run on December 7, 1855. 15 years and at least 4,000 dead. The best audiobook that I've ever heard is sim- there's a similar story in here where it's uh, called The Forgotten Highlander. If you have an extra credit on Audible, highly recommend you picking it up. It's like a long podcast. I think it's three hours and 14 minutes long. Uh, the book is The Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Urquhart. Uh, he was actually uh, he was captured in World War II by the Japanese and forced to build a railroad in a jungle by the Japanese Imperial Army. Army, And he did it mostly butt naked. The story is incredible. So let's get into how Miner gets in the banana business and then how he winds up teaming up with uh, Andrew and Baker. So it says, Keith thought that bananas would serve as a cheap food for his own workers. So that was his original intent. But then there's a uh, he has a realization. He's like, wait, there's a tremendous market for bananas in the north. And that's where Preston and Baker find him. In 1894, Keith signed a contract with Boston Fruit. He agreed to sell the company's entire banana harvest. And so think about the next page. They talk about how they, they're starting... Again, one of the world's first truly global corporations. The note I left myself on this page is just a way to think about them. They're the Rockefeller of the bananas. Everything was settled in less than an hour. There would be no, there, there would be neither loan nor temporary arrangement. The men would merge companies instead. A permanent solution to perpetual problems. It would give money to Keith, fruit for Preston, and Baker. The new enterprise would be called the United Fruit Company. And so they go around all the Caribbean, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Jamaica, Costa Rica, Honduras, Colombia, etc., etc., and they're buying land. With this in hand, Preston put the second part of his plan into effect. This is like the Rockefeller of bananas, a cunning way to bring order to a chaotic industry. What an interesting line there, because that's exactly how Rockefeller thought about what he was doing with Standard Oil. He traveled from port to port, stopping in every city where bananas moved in numbers. He took aside dozens of importers, giving them each the same pitch. Join us, get big, survive. In return for shares in their small companies, these men would receive United Fruit stock. This is the Rockefeller of bananas. It's so wild to me. After the year without bananas, most of the traders who survived were willing to swap independence for security. So what does that mean? I think it was 1899 exactly. They were heavily dependent on weather for their crop, as you could expect. I think it was a hurricane. I can't remember exactly. I'm surprised I didn't take notes on this. But some kind of climatic event caused them to to not have... There was like a, a year where they couldn't harvest any of their fruit. And so what happens... Just like Rockefeller, who was always operating from a position of financial strength way greater than his competitors, he just waited for a downturn and he'd just buy up your property. That's exactly what Preston's doing here. After the year without bananas, most of the traders who survived were willing to swap independence for security. In the first six months, United Fruit merged with 27 banana companies. Come on! That's exactly... This is crazy, the parallel here. We, You and I just went over the fact that... Was it 22? I can't remember the number. 22, 24, something like that. That Rockefeller swallows up the Cleveland Massacre. Rockefeller swallows up like 22 or 24, something like that, other refineries in like a few month period in Cleveland. We're seeing the exact same thing here. Six months later, excuse me, within six months, United Fruit merges with 27 banana companies. Rockefeller bananas. Okay, so that's the background with the founders. All these guys are going to know Zamuri. All of them are going to respect him. They're much older, obviously, than he is. Let's go back to Zamuri. Obviously, we're going to fast forward. Starting when he's 14, then he's 18, then he's 21, now he's 29. This is a few years before he's going to do this Honduran coup. At 29, he was rich, a well-known figure in a steamy paradise. Now he's already in, uh, he's moved his operations to New Orleans. Uh, his friends were associates, his mentors and enemies the same. He was a bachelor and alone, but not lonely. He was on a mission. 
He was in quest of the American dream and was circumspect and deliberate as a result. He never, so this is more about how he operates his business, he never sent letters or took notes, preferring to speak in person or by phone. He did not want to leave a record or draw attention. And so we already talked about how he's trying to get to the next level, right? Starts out with ripes. Then he's like, hey, I want to import. I want to own my own ships. Now he's going to like, he get, he always takes it. He's like, okay, let's, that's step one. Took step one as far as I can go. Now we go to step two. Let's take step two as far as I can go. And now he's going to go to step three. He's like, I need my own land. I need to like, he's vertically, vertically integrating, right? Uh, his company was operating as an importer, not growing bananas, but buying them from Central American farmers. Sir Murray's worries were about supply, setting a good price, working out deals with exporters. His firm was grossing several hundred thousand dollars a year, most of which went to pay farmers and sailors and local officials who had to be bribed. If you had looked into his eyes, you would see the machinery turning. That is what Frank Brogan told me. It's just the sort of person he was, explained Brogan, who had worked for Zamuri in South America. He was one of those guys. Part of him is always figuring things out. You listen to a man like that. He knows something that can't be taught. So he's going back and forth between Central America and New Orleans at the time. Uh, so it says when he was in town, meaning in New Orleans, he was on the docks, trading, questioning, comparing manifesto cargoes, making sure he wasn't getting ripped off. He knew everyone by name there, but paid. Sp oh, this is what I mentioned earlier. This is really smart. If you think about what he's doing, like you study those that came before you so you can avoid their fate. Getting rich is one skill. Staying rich is another. Zamuri was able to master both those skills. The guys that he's talking to only mastered one. He knew everyone by name, but he paid special attention to the old timers who had been in the trade since the days of wind power before the, steam, the technology of the steamship, which I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, they were grizzled and tobacco stained. Uh, as sunburned as pirates. They were former big timers, now just trying to survive. He winds up giving a bunch of these guys jobs. Again, he always wants to know what you know. And so we get into his thinking at this part when he's 29. The only way to do this was to expand. And the only way to do this was to plant his own bananas. It was a realization that sent Zamuri down the path he would follow for the rest of his life. A tortured path that led him into the jungle. So not only is this a fascinating biography of a formidable individual, but it's also a really interesting story about what what the world was like in New Orleans and Central America and the Caribbean in the early 1900s. He sets up shop in Honduras. This is night. The year is 1910, and it says when Missouri, when Zamuri arrived, it was a kind of frontier town. It was untouched by government or law. There was gunplay every night. The streets were awash in liquor and gold. And why is it attracting so many like ruffians to use the word of Alexander Graham Bell? Because Honduras had no extradition treaty with the United States. And because of that, it had become a criminal refuge filled with Americans on the lam. So this is where he becomes famous because he crosses the entire country by mule. I mentioned this earlier. His first time on a mule, Zamuri was thrown to the ground. The second time, the animal bit his toe. The third time, the mule dropped and rolled. The fifth time, the mule carried Zamuri to the middle of a river and left him there. But the point is, is that the reason this story is in there is because he's... He has incredible levels of endurance and persistence. Uh, so it says, Murray was a habitual limit crasher. He loved feats of endurance, proving himself by watching his companions flag, throw up their hands, and say, let's take a break for a beer. He crossed Honduras on muleback so he could learn the country, meet its people, and scout his property. And it says, Honduras is the size of Pennsylvania. And all this research and crossing the land is what opens up for his moment. This is what's going to build like the foundation of this incredible business that he's uh, in, the, in the process or in the middle of building. And this is just a great line. So he's going around obviously looking for, for land, right? He kept quiet because talking only drives up the price. So Murray bought his first piece of, 
parcel of land on the edge of the north coast of Honduras. Much of the property ran along the southern bank of the QML River. That's what his, num- his company's going to be called, by the way. This was long considered junk land. For $2,000, all of it borrowed, he got 5,000 acres. He was soon back in New Orleans wondering if 5,000 acres was enough. And this is where he's going to start having beef with his partner. It does not matter if you think it's enough, Hubbard t- said to him. We're out of money. And this is, this is amazing. I've, I've referenced this paragraph on past episodes of Founders as well because it's just amazing. A way to think about this, right? So he's like, hey, have this opportunity. No, no one, like There's cheap land, right? No one sees the value in it. There's no limit to how much I could buy. The only limit being money. What should I do? My partner's saying I'm crazy. And this is just fantastic writing. There are times when certain cards sit unclaimed in the common pile. When certain properties become available that will never be available again. A good businessman feels those moments like a fall in the barometric pressure. A great businessman is dumb enough to act on them even when he cannot afford to. And so how is he going to do this? Oh, man. Okay, so Murray returned to Honduras in the spring of 1910 with a plan that was very simple and beautifully effective. Head north beyond the last paved road into the delta of the river, flash a bankroll, and buy as much land as, as, as he could until his cash ran out. He was playing with borrowed money. Having tapped out every line of credit in New Orleans and Mobile, he had gone to the banks in New York and Boston. Whoever was lending, he was accepting. This is very similar to what we just learned about Rockefeller in the early days of his career, too. He was out there overextended and vulnerable. He might, he must have worried about the risk, but had to know this was his moment. This land would not be this cheap forever. In the course of a few months, he accumulated the uncleared acres that would constitute his first plantation. And why is that? Because to go, go back to what he said, if you know your business from A to Z, there's nothing problem you can't solve. How many of the executives in, later on in, in the United Fruit Company, which is headquartered in Boston, are going to be scouting land by mule? None. He had superior information, understood something important, loss on Hondurans. To the peasants that he was buying the land from, the land was swamp and disease. Nothing that will, be, that will still be nothing in a hundred years. Sam knew better. Because he was raised on a farm, he realized the meaning of all that black soil beneath the weeds. Because he worked as a jobber, he realized the worth of the fruit that would thrive in that soil. This land picked up for a song, was in fact the most valuable banana country in the world. Zamuri then went all across Honduras meeting government officials for that. So he needs a ton of money, right, that he's got to borrow. He needs it to buy land from people that don't think it's valuable, and then he needs it because he's going to pay off every single politician that he ever comes across. Flat-out corruption, not even trying to hide it. This is a result of this corruption. His company would be exempted from import duties on all equipment, exempted too from paying property, labor, and export tax. Zamuri's bananas would arrive in the United States unencumbered by such fees. This meant he could sell his product just as cheaply as United Fruit. If asked to sum up Sam in these early days when he was building his first, first plantation, I would use the word drive. And then a few sentences later, the author does my job for me. Why bananas? Because it was the nearest product at hand. If Sam had settled in Chicago, it would have been beef. If he was in Pittsburgh, it would have been steel. If he was in L.A., it would have been movies. In the end, it does not matter what you're stocking. Selling is the thing. And then we get to the part why Zamuri was so respected by so many of his employees. 
and also developing skill set that his competitors are going to lack because he's the one he's with his workers in the field. He liked doing physical labor and he talks about why he does, why he likes that later on. But this is a description of what they're doing. It was the hardest work in the world. If this is the kind of book I want it to be, it will leave you with a sense of the fields, the heat and the fear, the snakes in the brush that have to be killed with a single blow, the sting of the poison that makes you want to lie down just for a minute, the scorpions that drop into your shirt in search of exposed skin. So scor there's a, I didn't know scorpions nest in banana plants and banana trees. Uh, the mosquito swarms that, that deliver yellow fever, the malaria dreams, the swampland and broken tools and arsenic trees, the way your health is destroyed, your hands blistered, your back ruined, the way the world appears when you have forgotten to drink enough water. And just keep that in mind because that's what he's experiencing. You know, he's in his early, uh, late 20s, early 30s, you know, and then he's going to have to go up against banana executives who've taken over for the, the company founders that have long since died. And it's just like the, the experiences he, that Sam endured and that went through, just the knowledge that he gets from being involved in every single step of the process, the idea that you're going to wind up having some kind of information advantage over this person is just silly. And not only that, he's clearly de de demonstrated a high capacity to take pain. Zamori worked in the field besides his engineers, planters, and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat-covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but every banana comes from the banana that came before it. They said essentially like the banana that we eat is just like a billion. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a clone. Like a, There's billions and billions of clones of just whatever species of banana we're eating. They're all exactly the same. They describe the process in the book, but like there's this thing on the plant that you cut and then you, you can cut them into like pieces and wherever you plant them, they're just going to like uh, essentially build clones of them. But that's what the rhyme zone is. I didn't, I, I didn't remember that the last time. So it says, help map the plantations, plant the rhyme zones, clear the weeds, lay the track. He was a proficient snake killer. He shouted orders in dog Spanish. And this is why also what he liked about it. He believed in the transcendent power of physical labor that a man can free his soul only by exhausting his body. And then the author makes the point, I guess just the point I was trying to make to you. His years in the jungle gave him experience rare in the trade. Unlike most of his competitors, he understood every part of the business, from, from the executive suite where the stock was manipulated to the ripening room where the green fruit turned yellow. He was contemptuous of banana men who spent their lives in the north, far from the, from the plantations. We're going to see another Zemurism here. Those schmucks, what do they know? They're there. We're here. And so this plan, this mass expansion on borrowed money, makes this is going to lead to his breakup. Because his partner thought Zamuri was too bold, just like Rockefeller's early partners in the oil business thought he was too bold. Hubbard had agreed to the first round of bank loans and land purchases. Then he agreed to the second. Uh, but this was too much. Whereas Zamuri thought everything should be risked now while the opportunity presented itself, Hubbard believed the business should be given time to become established. First, plant the land we've acquired pay off our loans, and then we could think about acquiring more acres. Zamuri must have realized the business had to get big to survive. Go all in or get out, Sam said. Sam was young and wanted to bet everything. Hubbard did not have the fortitude for such risks. Asked to describe Zamuri by a New Orleans newspaper reporter after they broke up. This is fantastic. The best Hubbard could say was, he's a man with big ideas. So he's going to buy him out. What was Sam thinking? Piling debt on debt, risk on risk. He was taking it all on his own shoulders. But what did it matter? If he failed by himself, he would lose the exact same amount as if he failed with a partner. Everything. So now we get to the coup. And there's a whole, there's an entire chapter has like this backstory here. It's really fascinating. But it's 
it's a disagreement between multiple nations, right? And we've seen this play out over and over again. One nation lends another poorer nation money, high interest rate, they wind up defaulting. There's all these things that happen as a result of that. But the United States government is trying to step in because there's and trying to uh, there's going to be Secretary of State Knox and then J.P. Morgan makes his cameo here, where he's going to refinance and cash out these British bankers and get their railroad bonds that are taking place, I think, in Honduras. But I'm going to give you like the high level, like what's going on here and why Sam's doing what he's doing, right? And there's more obviously more detail if you want to hear the backstory in the book. The Knox plan was good for everyone, in fact, except the people of Honduras and for Sam Zamuri whose business could not function without the concessions and sweetheart deals that would be forbidden by Morgan. Remember, previously, Zamuri had bribed for advantageous finance, like economic uh, exemptions a year, like a few years before this is happening. Morgan's plan is going to wipe all that out. It would add as much as a penny per bunch uh, to each banana bunch, uh, which would drive Zamuri out of business. Zamuri went to work as soon as he learned the terms of the Knox plan. His goal was simple, undermine, overturn, undo, and kill it dead. And so this is where Zamuri is going to be summoned to the Washington, D.C. And it says, on what must have been one of the strangest days of his life, Zamuri received a message from Washington, D.C. He was to report to the office of the United States Secretary of State. He had been in America less than a generation, and here he was embroiled at the highest level of national affairs. And so the author says, I've pieced together from various sources their exchange. This is something, this is very similar to what happened. It starts with Knox, and then you'll understand who's saying what. Knox says... You've, been, you've not been brought here to haggle, sir. Then why have I been brought here? To be told that I'm finished? That's not my concern. Look, Mr. Secretary, if a few simple accommodations could be worked out, I'm not discussing this, Mr. Zamuri. I'm not bargaining. I'm telling you the policy of the United States. Now that you know the policy, I'm advising you, as nicely as I can, to go home and stay out of it. Do not meddle in Honduras. It is not your concern. But it is my concern, Mr. Secretary. The treaty will mean the end of my business. That's unfortunate, Mr. Zamuri, but my purview is larger than your banana business. When Zamuri stood to leave, Knox warned him a second time. Don't meddle. Stay out of it. I better not hear you've got yourself mixed up in the politics of Honduras. Zamuri nodded and seemed to agree, but Secretary Knox was not so sure. Though he tried to put people at ease, Zamuri often struck those in power as a man who could not be controlled. Yeah, that's an understatement. If you want to know what he's going to do, forget what he seems to agree and figure out what's in his interest. As soon as Zamuri was gone, Knox made some calls. So he winds up having them. Zamuri is wind up being put under uh, surveillance. And so this is just more great writing. Pretend you're Samuel Zamuri. You're 32. You've been in America less than, th than 20 years. You lived in Russia before that in a poor farming town. Now you're here, an entrepreneur of considerable means, but still somewhere in your mind, the little guy who snuck in the back door. You're a husband and a father with a young daughter and another child on the way. You've been summoned to Washington, called to account by the Secretary of State, warned. What do you do? Put your head down? Shut up? Sit in a corner and thank God for your good fortune? Well, maybe that's what you would do, but not Sam Zamuri. Don't get involved. How about I overthrow the fucking government? Is that too involved? You made a deal with the president of Honduras. Well, what if he's not president no more? Consider the audacity in defying Knox and J.P. Morgan. Sam Zamuri was challenging two of the most powerful people in America. Zamuri's scheme can be described as a coup disguised as a revolution. So that brings us back 
to the events that were taking place in the very beginning of the book where he's giving them weapons, money, <laughs> an old <laughs> war ship that, was, that served in the Spanish-American War. And so the book goes into more detail. I just want to give you the results of the coup. And it's just fascinating. It says the U.S. ambassador let it be known that the United States could work with Bonilla. Bonilla had, had overthrown the government. This is obviously the guy that, that Zamuri funded. In other words, and so why is that important? In other words, uh, the Secretary of State Knox had switched sides. His point being, I really don't care who the president is as long as I can control him, which is obviously, the, unfortunately, history of Central and South America to a large degree. So he's like, all right, fine, we'll deal with that guy. As long as we can control the person, it doesn't matter. And so says, uh, uh, this is a result for, for Zamuri's business, though. Bonilla did not forget his bene benefactor. One of the first official acts was to Congress, oh, was to have Congress give Zamuri concessions covering the next 25 years. Uh, Zamuri's settlement included permission to import any and all equipment duty-free to build any and all. This is just corruption, right? I mean, unfortunately, this takes place back then, takes place today all over the world. It's not what you and I want to see as obviously as entrepreneurs. It's more like crony capitalists, but it is the environment that that we live in. Zamuri's settlement, settlement included uh, permission to import any and all equipment duty-free to build any and all railroads, highways, and other infrastructure that he might need. He also got a $500,000 loan to repay all expenses incurred while funding the revolution. That is crazy. As well as an additional 24,000 acres of land on the north coast of Honduras to be claimed at a later date. No taxes, no duties, and, and free land. These were all conditions that would let Sam Zamuri take on United Fruit. So he's going to spend years down in Honduras. He goes back and forth, but he spends a lot of time in Honduras. Uh, this is a little bit of his routine at this point in his career. He's up early each morning and eats breakfast of raw vegetables and bananas. In other cases, I might not linger on what a man had for breakfast, but such details fascinated and confused Zamuri's competitors. Executives at United Fruit were bewildered by reports of the jungle-dwelling Russian who had been living for weeks on nothing but figs, or who was taking a fast cure and not eating anything for 20 days, or who had been standing on his head besides a shade tree in the process of proving or disproving that inversion benefits the digestion. Okay, so that's something he did a lot in his life. For some reason, after he'd eat, he'd stand on his head. Uh, at, and then the note I left myself on here was hilarious. He's the Jay-Z of banana moguls. He writes nothing down and keeps it on his head because Jay-Z's famous on not writing his raps. He just does it all in his mind. As for the reports, sales figures and yields, the length of the average banana, the market rates per stem, etc., etc. Zamuri went through these fast, scanning them. A few mental notes and he was done. He disdained bureaucracy and hated pa paperwork. So seldom does he dictate a letter that he requires no full-time secretary. He will telephone division managers in a half a dozen countries, correlate their reports in his head, and reach his decision without touching a pencil. In the years that followed the coup, Sam spent most of his time in Honduras. By 1913, he had saved enough money to buy back the stake that United Fruit owned in his company, a move that would secure Zamuri's independence. This is how the fish and the whale become competitors. Preston did not want to sell back his stake. Selling back these shares was unusual for United Fruit, but the company was forced to by outside events. This is when they're getting, the Justice Department keeps bringing all these different um, lawsuits against United Fruit, or the threat of a lawsuit, I guess, is the, um, they do have, it gets up to the Supreme Court, but that happens in a few years from now, but they're essentially being threatened and forced to do this because they're, they're like, hey, we know you're a monopoly. Uh, the, though the Justice Department never filed any charges, the investigation had the desired effect. By forcing Preston to sell his shares back to Zamuri, the government created a competitive market. It did this by assuring the Zamuri the freedom to develop into a genuine competitor. This is really important because, again, I want to ho hound on the fact that, like, 
Founders understand founder mentality. They clearly see it in other people. So th they see this. Preston sees this in Zamuri. And not only Preston, but Keith and everybody else. This is in later years when Zamuri had grown powerful. Analysts spoke of the mistakes that United Fruit made. They had underestimated a dangerous rival in Zamuri. In fact, Preston and Keith understood the genius of Zamuri from the beginning. They had long been dazzled by his rise from the docks, but it was a matter of triage. They had to cut off the leg to save the body. Cut free the banana man to save the company. And so we're going to fast forward a few years. This is Zamuri at 40 years old. So now he's got 20 years in the banana trade. Again, I'm going to read this whole thing to you because this is just incredible writing about an incredible founder. He was respected because he understood the trade. By the time he was 40, he had served in every position, from fruit jobber to boss. He worked on the docks, on the ships, on the railroads, in the fields, and the warehouses. He had ridden the mules. He had managed the fruit and the money, the mercenaries and the government men. He understood the meaning of every change in weather, the significant significance of every date on the calendar. There was not a job he could not do, nor a task he could not accomplish. He considered, this is so important for us to internalize in our own careers, he considered it a secret to his success. He was up every morning at dawn, having breakfast, standing on his head, walking in the fields. As far as possible, he refrained from giving interviews, addressing shareholders, or attending functions, all of which took him away from his work. He was one of those men who toiled every day, all day, every day, until they had to be rolled away in a chair. When he failed to appear at a reception in Havana, Cuba, which had been thrown in his honor, a lieutenant tracked him down to the... This is... So I talked about on the Rick Rubin podcast I did. It's episode 245. I was like, listen, this is the most inner scorecard shit I've ever seen. Inner scorecard obviously being Buffett's idea that you should be doing things based on what you feel is right, not an external scorecard, which is doing things on what other people might think or feel. And I said, like, uh, the fact that Rick Rubin was such a recluse and so such a workaholic that he didn't even pick up his Grammy. <laughs> he was too busy working. And I was like, that's the most inner scorecard shit I've ever seen. We're going to see the exact same thing here with Murray. Uh, when he failed to appear at a reception in Havana, Cuba, which had been thrown in his honor, didn't even show up to a party in his honor, his lieutenant tracked him down to the wharf, where he was going over manifest documents with a ship's purser. Come on, man. That's the exact same thing. He was wildly ambitious and innovated like mad. As soon as he had full control of his company, he began to visit boatyards. He wanted to build a fleet so he would never again be dependent on another company to haul his product. And then this is what the founders, one of the founders of UF said about Zamuri or knew about Zamuri, that Zamuri could play as dirty as anyone else in the game. And this is coming from Minor Keith. Minor Keith is a dude that they said that the locals in Costa Rica said he fed his brothers to the jungle. Like, imagine the kind of person you have to be to build a railroad in a jungle. And then, as a side hustle, wind up starting, <laughs> that's not enough, wind up starting the largest banana company the world has ever seen. And so this is perfect. This is exactly what I've been trying to, to make this point multiple times so far. That is why Minor Keith never underestimated Zamuri. He recognized him as one of his own. A throwback to the sort of man, excuse me, the sort of man who built the industry, who went into the jungle with nothing but trinkets and came out with a million dollars. And this is like where we're in the peak of his career. We're just saying, there's just like some highlights, like something that you and I have talked about over and over again. One of my favorite quotes I've ever read about Steve Jobs was that Apple was just Steve Jobs with 10,000 lives. The culture of his company, meaning Zamuri, and obviously applies to Jobs and everybody else, the culture of his company was his personality. And so it goes up to this point. It's like by 1925, it's the, it's the biggest competitor of United Fruit. United Fruit still has way more workers. They have a little bit like they're more revenue. Uh, Zamuri's profit margin is a lot higher, though. 
And so they just pull out. They just want to pull out a couple things as uh, the author compares both businesses. It, it, it was increasingly clear that Sam's and Murray had built a better business. His company was superior to United Fruit in a dozen ways that did not show up on the balance sheet. So it talks about the fact that UF is a conglomerate. There's a lot of redundancy, duplication of tasks. I'll skip over this part. But at this point, the founders are not longer there. So it says every decision for Zamuri was made with confidence and authority. Zamuri could move fast without waiting for permission or for a committee report. He could take risks. Essentially, they're describing the difference between a founder and an executive, right? He could take risks without fear of losing his job. He could hire a fire with, with sureness because he actually lived in Honduras and knew the situation on the ground. It was a contrast of styles. The executives who ran United Fruit had taken over from the founders and were less interested in risking than in preserving. Zermuri was the founder, forever on the attack. I love that line, forever on the attack, at work, in progress, growing by trial and error. He was constantly inventing. Most people, this is such, <laughs> I love this guy. Uh, I don't like the things he did. Like he was, uh, I like his approach to business. I obviously don't like the corruption and, you know, all the other stuff. I'm obviously like, and he knows that like towards the end of his life, he's like, I, they, I have a bunch of regrets and some of the stuff I did, but I like his attitude towards business. Zamuri was constantly inventing. Most people looking at a banana see a delicious fruit. When Zamuri looked at a banana, he saw room for improvement. And so the result, too, is the people inside United Fruit can see the difference, right? So it says the most ambitious banana men began to flock to Zamuri. Dozens of them quit United Fruit. And so this is going to be bring Zamuri into war with the guy that succeeded Andrew Preston as president of United Fruit. It's the guy, Victor Cutter. They hate each other. And this is the guy that, that Zamuri is going to wind up firing when he takes control of the company. But at this point, they're like, hey, we can't compete with Zamuri, so we need to buy him. Buy him. And so they, Cutter sends this guy down to one of the company's officers to talk and be like, hey, let, let's come to agreement here. Just sell me your company. And Zamuri says this, turning down the offer, Zamuri said, hell, I'm having so much fun and I'm a young man. Why should I quit? And so this is where we see a conflict in Cutter's own psychology because he's like, at the same point, he realizes, hey, this is my most, this is like my most formidable competitor, so much so that I'm trying to buy the company. And then when he gets turned down, he, he like, he constantly is insulting. He's constantly insulting Zamuri. Cutter became the first president of United Fruit who had not been a founder. Though, pro though he was probably the best of the second generation, Cutter was simply not made of the stuff of the old-time banana men. During the 1920s, death had taken the two great leaders of the trade, Andrew Preston and Minor Keith. A few of the more perceptive students of the trade asserted that the most likely contender for leadership was not these new UF men, but Sam Zamuri, who was still being described by Cutter as that little fellow in Honduras. And so now I'm going to fast forward. We get into the banana war. This is the war that is going to take place between Zamuri and Cutter. And this is the war that the United States government has to step in and end. And they do that through by forcing them to merge. And so this is this an entire chapter on this. There's a ton of information that's happening here. I just want to tell you like broad strokes, like what is the banana war about? And there's just, again, great writing about Zamuri, who he was. Uh, from the outside, the banana war seems unfathomable. Zamuri had taken on an enemy of superior resources and size over a few thousand acres that would only add, only marginally add to his wealth. Why would he do this? To colleagues who knew Zamuri, his motivation was clear. He wanted to win and would do whatever it took. He was a self-made man filled with the most dangerous kind of confidence. He had done it before and believed he could do it again. This gave him the air of a berserker who says, if you're going to fight me, you better kill me. If you've ever known such a person, you will recognize the type at once. If he does not say much, it's because he considers small talk a weakness. Wars are not won by running your mouth. I'm describing 
a once essential American type that has largely vanished. Men who channeled all their love and fear into the business, the factory, the plantation, the shop. And so this is what they're fighting over. The Banana War was centered on a single, centered on a single piece of land, 5,000 acres that both companies coveted. United Fruit discovered the problem first. The land was on territory claimed by Guatemala and Honduras, and it seemed to have two separate legal owners. And in a paragraph, the author does a great job giving us a metaphor from the way a big company thinks and the way an entrepreneur thinks. Two different approaches to acquiring disputed land. When this mess of deeds came to light, this is one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire book. When the, this mess of deeds came to light, United Fruit did what big bureaucracy heavy companies always do. They hired lawyers and investigators to search every file for the identity of the true owner. Owner, This took months. In the meantime... <laughs> Oh, I love this part so much. In the meantime, Zamuri meeting separately with each claimant, claimant the, the two different people claim they own the land, simply bought the land from both of them. He bought it twice, paid a little more, yes, but if you factor in the cost of all those lawyers, he probably still spent less than UF, and he came away with the prize. And so the government actually catches Sam importing weapons. Uh, United Fruit is doing the same. And so this is where they're going to have this, like, the, the, I'm essentially telling you, like, the result of this government-mandated merger. But I want to point out, like, he's aggressive and ruthless, but he's also rich now. And so he actually has something to lose. That means he's got, he's, he's got a vulnerability that he didn't have when he was young. And so it says, uh, Zamuri's fruit company was Zamuri in the shape of a corporation. His personality made manifest. His home and his love, where he tested his theories and formed his philosophy. Get up first. Work harder. Get your hands in the dirt and blood in your eyes. But he had since become a man of means. Whereas the young Sam was reckless and immune from nowhere with nothing, there were all sorts of ways the middle-aged Sam could be hurt. This is such an interesting thought in a, in a short sentence. Check this out. Success limited his options and made him vulnerable. And so he is 53 years old when this is happening this is a result. Sam would receive 300,000 shares of United Fruit. Uh, his stake after the merger would be valued at more than $30 million, a figure worth considering as it would make Zamuri, who had arrived in Alabama with nothing three decades before, one of the richest men in America. So if you use one of those inflation calculators online, that's like a half a billion dollars today. As part of the agreement, Zamuri, who would now, would now become the majority owner of United Fruit stock, agreed to retire from the banana trade. And so this is happening. The deal was actually approved in December 1929, three months after the stock market crash. So Zamuri's older, very rich, very well known. He develops a series of enemies, very powerful enemies. One of these is Huey Long. Huey Long is going to be the former governor of Louisiana and a sitting U.S. senator when he's assassinated. It's not clear who killed him, but he also had a bunch of enemies. So it says, when Huey said, let's soak the rich, Sam heard, let's soak Zamuri. When Huey said, let's crush the ring, Sam heard, let's crush Zamuri. To Long, to Huey Long, Zamuri represented everything that was wrong in America. The fat cat who had taken more than his share. So what, what's happening is Huey Long would go around and he'd make public speeches talking about how evil Zamuri is and other rich people, other rich people. He, he compared it. Uh, his thought was like, hey, uh, what if we invited 10 people to a, a barbecue and we have one guy that took 90 percent of the food? He's like, we wouldn't allow that. We shouldn't allow it in economic terms. You know, he wanted the redistribution of wealth. He wanted all these other things. And he made very powerful enemies. And unfortunately, one of these enemies, and people never found out who, is going to have him killed. 
uh, on foreign policy, Long seemed to have just one concern. He did not want U.S. troops sent to Central America, where Long claimed they would protect the interests of Zamuri, who Long denounced on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It seemed the conflict would turn into something truly ugly. Then it did, or maybe it didn't. But on September 8, 1935, Senator Long was approached by a man in the hall of the Capitol building. How crazy is this? And this, his name was Carl Weiss. Weiss shot Long in the chest, then struggled with his bodyguards who knocked the assassin to the ground and shot him 30 times. Long was taken to the hospital where he died. He was 42 years old. And so Rich Cohen did a lot of research, and this is what he says. I'm not saying Zamuri was behind the Huey Long assassina assassination. There was enough doubt to warrant a full-scale investigation by the Justice Department in the fall of 1935. I once knew one of the investigators. When I asked him about the killing, he said, It's Louisiana. You never know. So let's get to the part where Zamuri starts realizing, hey, I'm going to have to take over this company. He's not the type to persist in a flawed situation. That's very obvious about him. So you could think of this section as like, how would you respond to a 90% drop in your net worth? So it says, for Zamuri, the collapse of United Fruit uh, stock would have been devastating. Most of his net worth was tied up into it. The greatness of Zamuri lies in the fact that he never lost faith in his ability to savage a situation. Bad things happened to him as bad things happened to everyone. But unlike so many, he was never tempted by failure. He never felt powerless or trapped. He was an optimist. He stood in constant defiance. When the Secretary of State teamed up with J.P. Morgan and the Honduran government in a way contrary to his interest, he simply changed the Honduran government. When United Fruit drew a line at the river and said, you shall not cross, he crossed anyway. When he was forbidden to build a bridge, he built a bridge and called it something else. For every move, there is a counter move. For every disaster, there is a recovery. He never lost faith in his own agency. With his fortune fast diminishing, it was time to act. But how could UF be saved? Where did Zamuri go for answers? Did he meet with the economic experts and college professors? Did he call the chairman of the board? Did he talk to the president and ask, do you have a plan? And even if they did have a plan, so what? These were the same men who had run the company into a ditch. He went to the docks instead, where he spent the winter of 1932 walking through warehouses and standing on decks of banana boats, talking to fruit peddlers and captains and loaders and the people who really knew. And so the first problem he realizes, he learns that the banana captains were on orders from Boston to lay off the throttle and cross the gulf at paddle speed because they were interested in saving gasoline. But a man focused on the near horizon of costs can sometimes lose sight of the far horizon of potential windfall. By his quick calculations, Sam realized that whatever money was being saved on fuel was being lost on the higher percentage of fruit that ripened during the extra days on the water. These smucks, they're losing more than they're saving, he said. So he goes next year to the board of directors and he goes to the meeting. At this meeting, they were discussing a request from plantation managers who wanted $10,000 to build an irrigation ditch in Guatemala. The executives called on experts who detailed the cost and benefits of the project. Zamuri, Zamuri grew restless. To him, such a debate was symptomatic of a greater problem. This man in Guatemala, he's your manager, isn't he? Zamuri asked. Yes they said. Then listen to what the man is telling you. You're here. He's there. If you trust him, trust him. If you don't trust him, fire him and get a man you do trust in the job. So the summary here is he's offering all these suggestions and they're not being listened to. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to just go away mad. I'm going to solve the problem. He goes around 
And he remember, he's the largest shareholder. So he goes and has these secret meetings with all these other shareholders. And he's like, hey, give me your proxies. He spent the following weeks on the road sitting in the offices and living rooms of shareholders. He made the same case over and over again. The current management is not up to the task. When Zamuri spoke to the board again several months later, he had with him a bag full of proxies. So those are the voting rights turned over to him by other stockholders. So they are lining up behind Zamuri. Along with his own shares, these proxies could give Zamuri control of the company, though he kept their existence a secret. And this is wild. This is when the fish is going to eat the whale. The chairman of the board was Daniel Wing, the president. He was also the president of the First National Bank of Boston. To him, Zamuri was still Sam the Banana Man, the fruit jobber from the docks. He already knew what Sam could teach him about the business. Nothing. When it was Sam's turn to speak, he chose each word carefully, explaining his ideas in a thick Russian accent. When Zamuri finished, Wing said, Unfortunately, Mr. Zamuri, I can't understand a word of what you say. The men at the table with Wing started to laugh. Zamuri's hands turned into fists. He went to the other room to retrieve his bag of proxies. He came back, slapped him on the table, and said, You're fired. Can you understand that? You gentlemen have been fucking up this business long enough. I'm going to straighten it out. And this is just a fantastic, just mind-blowing, this just blew my mind, this paragraph. Much later, analysts pointed out the flaw in the non-compete clause Zamuri signed at the time of the merger. It barred Zamuri from working for a rival or starting a new fruit company. But it did not foresee the outlandish possibility of Zamuri taking over United Fruit itself. So he's going to run this company for another 25 years, but he saves the company in the first 60 days. This is what happens. He overlooked nothing. Whenever he found a man who could not act or was slow to decide, he replaced him. He said, I realized the greatest mistake that United Fruit Management had made was to assume it could run its activities in many tropical countries from an office on the 10th floor of a Boston office building, Zamuri said. I should, I guess I should have told you, I mean, it's pretty predictable what his move was going to be up until before this. He just went straight to the field. Uh, so that's where, that's where it's saying he overlooked nothing. Executives on the spot were treated like messenger boys. I completely reversed that policy. I laid down what might be called a constitution for the company, Zamuri said. It was established as a fixed policy that if a plantation manager could not handle his difficulties, we would appoint some man who could. And so over the next 60 days, he's just going through every single, he's doing an inventory of every single part of the company. And he's there in person talking to the people actually doing the work. He saw the problem of half-empty ships, selling some ships, renting out space and others. A United Fruit ship did not leave the port until it was packed. He had United Fruit's holdings reappraised. The value of the machines and the land had collapsed during the Depression, which saved the company millions in taxes. He left fields follow, further decreasing banana supply so he could control the market price. On some plantations, he replaced bananas with sugarcane, a staple that was always in demand. He looked for other crops to plant, like coconuts and pineapples. From Boston to Bogota, he weeded out superfluous employees until one of every four was gone. So he lays off 25% of their workforce. It was not these policies alone that turned things around. It was also the energy behind the policies. The six-week tour, the, fire, the hiring and the firing, the tough decisions made about the fleet and the fields. A firm hand had taken hold of the company. The stock price doubled in the first two weeks of Zamuri's reign. This had less to do with tangible results. It was too early for that. Then uh, It had less to do with the tangible results because it was too early for that than the confidence of investors. If you looked at the newspaper, you would see the new head of the company landing his plane on a strip in the jungle, anchoring his boat on the north coast of Honduras, going here and there and working and working and working. In a time of crisis, 
the mere evidence of activity can be enough to get things moving. That's a fantastic sentence. Let's repeat that sentence. At a time of crisis, the mere evidence of activity can get enough can be enough to get things moving. Though Zamuri would stay at the helm for another 25 years, United Fruit was saved in his first 60 days. So fast forwarding about a decade, World War II is going to make the sale of his primary product, the banana, very difficult. In fact, like Britain says, hey, you can't import them anymore. It's like a luxury. And so the reason I want to po like point this out to you is because Zamuri's reaction to this is just perfect. He chose innovation over despair. Zamuri was never heard to bitch or justify. He was a member of a generation that lived by the maxim, never complain, never explain. What do you do when your product rots? You find something else to sell. Zamuri began to look for other crops he could grow on his plantations, crops that could be classified as necessities, meaning they would not have a quota, right? Like some, some, banana, some countries, you couldn't import any bananas, and then other countries said, you know, we have a limit of how many we're going to import. So that's obviously not good if, you can, if countries are limiting how much of your product you can sell. He sent agents in search of plants and trees that grew in the tropics on other parts of the globe, so around the equator, right? He was especially interested in plants critical to the war effort, but whose import from Asia had been blocked by the Japanese during World War II. So he, he grew things like hemp and rubber trees and essentially figured, hey, we're going to make America more self-sufficient and we're going to pick things that are in high demand by the military. By 1944, Zamuri had thousands of acres bearing strange fruit. It was among the proudest achievements of his life. He was a farmer at heart. And here he was behaving like a farmer in the midst of a locust blight. He was innovating his way out of ruin. So by this point in his life, Zamuri's a much older man. His son is 31 years old. He's a pilot and he volunteers to fight in World War II. Sam Zamuri Jr. enlisted shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. In those days when the fighting started, you went. If you didn't go, there was something wrong with you. Sam Jr. was attached to the Western Desert Air Force in Northern Africa. It was extremely dangerous work. Here's a photo of Sam Jr. taken in the fall of 1943. He's broad-shouldered and handsome in his flight suit, hands in his pockets, smiling. He flew dozens of missions. missions. On January 7, 1943, Sam Jr. took off at sundown. Major Samuel Zamuri Jr., 31, having lost his way in heavy fog, flew his P-51 into a mountain. There was a flash when the fuel tanks ignited and then darkness. I don't know when Zamuri Sr. got the news. It's impossible to express the horror he must have felt. One moment... There was a world full of people and markets. The next moment, there was nothing. It was the blackest period in his life. Historic events transpired. The invasion of Normandy, the dropping of the atomic bomb, but he did not notice. The war ended, the squares filled with sailors. The men got drunk, the mothers wept with joy. Sam did not know what they were celebrating. The first peacetime shipment of bananas arrived soon after. He did not care. Everyone I spoke to who knew Zamuri told me that the death of Sam Jr. was the great tragedy of the man's life. He came out of it and got back to work, but he was never the same. And that part was really hard to get through because you're almost at the end of the book. You feel like you know who this person is. And then obviously I'm a father. I have not only a son, but also a daughter. And you immediately start thinking of your kids. And like, I just immediate. Your eyes fill up, at least mine did, with just tears. It's just unbelievably devastating.
And so a few years later, Zamuri's going to hire this guy named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays is considered like the founder of the public relations uh, industry. I just ordered a biography on him just because there's two paragraphs in here and I need to understand how this guy thinks. This this coup is really taken up by the U.S. State Department, the CIA. Zamuri, it, it's in his interest. It plays a role, but this is not like under his direction like the first one was. And this one actually backfires and causes like public relations disaster for the company. And eventually the, the break, the uh, United Fruits gets broken up. And, you know, this is like the, the apogee of the, the company. But I just want to pull out Edward Bernays. I'm pretty sure he's... I'm pretty sure he's going to be the next episode of Founders because he's just the way this guy thinks is very unusual. And so there's just a few paragraphs that are going to occur over several pages. Where did the interest of United Fruit end and the interest of the United States begin? It's impossible to tell. That was the point of all Sam's hires. If I can perfectly align the interests of my company with the interests of top officials in the U.S. government, not the interests of the country, but the interests in the, of, of the people in charge of the country, then the United States will secure my needs. And so Bernays had been hired by all kinds of people bunch of like fortune 500 companies this is an example of that uh he he winds up running the public relations campaign to convince women to start smoking uh bernays told hill that he that he should instead link his private interest which is to get women to smoke more to a public cause with this in mind he planted newspaper articles that challenged the taboo the taboo against female public smoking arguing that cigarettes were neither a dirty habit nor a weight loss tool but a symbol of empowerment. So his whole thing is indirection. That is everything that Bernays does, or at least in this book, and I'll learn more when I read his biography, it's all about indirection. Here's another example. And this is his solution to uh, falling book sales. Rather than fight for a single season of sales, he would make the world more friendly to his product. In the 1950s, a consortium of publishers hired Bernays. They were concerned about a dip in numbers. Did Bernays go to school into schools and make the case for books? No, he did not. He talked to architects and contractors who were designing the new suburban homes and convinced them a house is not modern if it does not include built-in bookshelves. In direction. And finally, this is exactly what Bernays' plan to help Zamuri. Uh, Bernays would not make the world better for bananas. He would make the world better for American politicians who would make the world better for the CIA, which would make the world better for bananas in direction. And so later on, Bernays is describing exactly why his methods were so effective, uh, effective in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of people who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world. He is obviously a master at that. So Bernays gets the CIA to run this, this coup. I just want to pull out one thing. I'm not going to spend too much time here. The CIA eventually selects this guy named Carlos Armas, right? He's a 39-year-old former officer in the Guatemalan military. And there's going to be a, and the end of the sentence of this paragraph is just incredible writing and an incredible thought. So the prehistory of Carlos is he was should have he almost died in battle, but he winds up escaping when he was supposed to be executed. And the way he escapes is a based on a partnership between the ages of Minor Keith and Sam Samuri. This will make more sense in a minute. Carlos was defeated and 16 of his men were killed himself among them, or so it seemed. While being dragged across the field to the cemetery, he moaned. He was taken to a hospital and put back together. He was tried for treason and sentenced to death. He escaped six months later, just two days before he was about to be executed. He slipped out of prison through an abandoned tunnel of the International Railways of Central America, 
which had been founded by Minor Keith. That's one of the founders of United Fruit. Think about it. Here was Keith, the former vice president of UF, collaborating through the ages with Zamuri, providing the tunnel that saves the general who overthrows the president and restores the banana land. And that is the apogee of the United Fruit Company. It's, it's prosecuted, broken up. The, de- the book details more of the, like, the economic fallout from that. Zamuri retires. Zamuri actually retired from the United Fruit Company two years before that. He was 74 and he lives till he's 84. While no one was looking, Sam Zamuri had grown painfully, shockingly, bitterly old. It's like this. You leave the house in the morning and you're young and fit and strong and you whistle as you walk down the street. Then you turn a corner and bang, you run right into your own decrepit 78-year-old self going the other way. He retired from the banana trade for the last time. He left Honduras, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Cuba, Ecuador, Colombia, forever. At a certain age, no matter which direction you walk, you're walking away. Sam Z, Sam the Banana Man, El Amigo, the Big Russian, the Gringo. He was not an easy person, nor is his biography without controversy. To some, it is the story of a great man, a pioneer in business, a hero. To others, it's the story of a pirate, a conquistador who took without asking. Sam's defining characteristic was his belief in his own agency, his refusal to despair. No story is without the possibility of redemption. With cleverness and hustle, the worst can be overcome. I can't help but feel that we would do well by emulating Sam's Murray, not the brutality or the conquest, but the righteous anger that sent the striver into the boardroom of laughing elites, waving his proxies, shouting, you gentlemen have been fucking up this business long enough. I'm going to straighten it out. And that is where I'll leave it for the full story. Highly, highly recommend reading this book. I think every founder should have it in its library. Talk to your friends that have read the book. I have never come across anybody that has not done anything else but enthusiastically recommend reading the book. It is fantastic. This is the second time I've read it. I'm sure in the future, maybe a few years from now, I'll read it again. If you buy the book using the link that's in the show notes of your podcast player, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. If you want to see every single book in reverse chronological order, you can order them. It's uh, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash founders podcast. You'll see every single book. And if you buy on that uh, Amazon shop, you will also be obviously being supporting the podcast at the same time. That is 255 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon.